Your single friends say we ain't been together long enough to be in love Your married friends say you just know, you just know when it's real and let it flow Well I say time ain't nothing, time ain't nothing Me and my ex were together two years, now it's over Time ain't nothing, time ain't nothing Hasn't been long but we feel this way But if you ask me I'm here tonight to talk to you guys about our podcast, which is over Edward Albee and his play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. We decided for our project that we would explore the very name of the play. Why did Edward Albee choose the play on words, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, instead of Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf or any other verse that he could have used? Is there a reason? Is there not a reason? We decided we would explore that. So today I'm here with Amanda. Hello. And Maya. Hi, guys. And we are here today to explore this a little bit and see what we can find out. Um, have you guys actually watched the play? I've actually watched the movie um, starring Elizabeth Taylor. I've only read the play. You've read the play. I have read the play several times. And uh, even though I'm not a fan of absurdism, I just want to throw that out there. Um, I really do like this script because it, it kind of does have some interesting elements. And it, it does this weird thing where it kind of wants to dip its feet into two different styles. Um, so, Amanda, what did you find out during your research? Well, for one, Virginia Woolf, um, she's one of my favorite writers. Um, but to understand her, you have to look into her work a little bit deeper and understand like she wasn't just a woman activist she wasn't just someone that wanted to uh, write stories just because she there was meaning behind a lot of her stories um in fact one of her one of her um her stories that she did write was uh, miss dalloway i don't know if any of you have ever read it but it's a very very interesting book um and it talks about a lady around her middle age years um and how she's acquaintance is how that may relate back actually uh, relates to them throwing their party together and them inviting the younger couple that they uh, met at the university it kind of just puts them back into that um, we don't know you but we're gonna get to know you and then you're gonna get to know who we are and I think that's where the whole um, absurdism comes in you don't really know where it's going you just kind of follow it I think um, I have read Mrs. Dalloway, and I just like that correlates with this because it's like um, those the couples in the play are kind of hiding behind this facade, and that's a big part of Mrs. Dalloway. Is these people are trying to appear as though they are more than what they actually are, and so that's really that's a big part of what this that is kind of goes together. Well, and I think that's really an interesting concept. Um, the thing about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the, the part of it that I really latched onto and I really went deeper with my research was uh, in the writing style. 
The thing about Virginia Woolf that is, or who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, let me rephrase that, that is, that is really unique and fascinating about this script is it's an absurdist play, but it dabbles its toes into realism just enough to kind of throw off the reader. And the thing about absurdist, absurdist theater is that it doesn't share the same structure or artistic qualities as realism. And I believe that's where a lot of readers and viewers tend to go astray and they get things wrong. They want to impose the structure on absurdism that just simply isn't there. Um, at least for our generation, for those of us who are sitting here right now, we have kind of grown up on realism with a little dabble of romanticism. It's, it's what we're familiar with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then when we encounter something on the stage, we want it to fit that narrative of everything has a beginning, middle, and end. There's a catalyst, there's a climax, there's a resolution. And the thing about absurdism is it's just not structured that way. Right. And you just can't make that script fit this narrative. Um, to borrow a little bit from Ionesco, I believe his definition really does a wonderful job of explaining absurdist theater. And what he says is, absurd is that which is devoid of purpose, cut off from his religion, metaphysical and transcendental tools, roots, man is lost, all his actions become senseless, absurd, and useless. Um, I think that really is a good in a nutshell of absurdist theater, kind of to explain what it really is. And also, unlike realism, the characters in absurdist plays don't have a personality that's structured by common sense or anything realistic in nature at all. Absurdist characters are usually entirely created on the stage and they're created within the world of the play. And also, often characters that play like protagonist type roles, they have what you might call special personalities. They may do weird little things like repeat words. They may repeat sentences. They may speak in a broken manner. And, and it really all is what rounds into absurdism. With that being said, I don't really believe there is any grand meaning behind the play on words. Um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? I believe to impose meaning into this word choice is kind of to impose a structure on a or a set of ideas on a script where those things just don't really exist here. It's, it's absurdist theater. It is, well, it's much more concerned with the convention of man and than what it really is with motivating the audience to fix it. We, with our realistic worldview, we want to motivate our audience to go out and fix things because we're still heavily influenced by, by the modernists and we want them to go fix it. Well, the thing about the absurdists is they're not modernists. They're, postmoderns and you know you came out of this generation where we have the modernists like hey look society's messed up you should go out and fix this and then we come into postmodern and they basically say hey society's messed up here's a cat on a leash they they really aren't concerned with the circumstances they're they're really more concerned with human nature itself so I wonder if Albie had any meaning um, as far as like choosing Virginia Woolf because as far as like absurdism goes like by her ending her life that was the you know the ultimate way for her to to die was suicide the ultimate finger to everybody yeah. <laughs> and it was just yeah. like you know I'm gonna walk out into this open body of water and put rocks in my pocket and and that's it you know and if you find me you find me if you don't you don't and I mean to me I wonder if that was maybe a little bit that played into him choosing her for the title 
Maybe, because, I mean, if you really think about her death, her death kind of doesn't have rhyme or reason to it. Yeah. I mean, it's not the typical way somebody would kill themselves. Mm -hmm. As I said, it's still absurdism, and I kind of still have to stand my intellectual ground, mostly (laughs) because I'm stubborn, and just so you know, I'm going to stand my intellectual ground, that, that there really isn't a grand meaning behind it. But I think that's something that's really interesting to to think about and to consider is this concept of, is there that little connection there because of her death? Or is it really just he chose it because the lead character sings his little tune to who's afraid of the big bad wolf, so it was convenient? Mm-hmm. Well, see, one thing that I found in my research was that um, Albie actually says that he ch- what that meant the title, Who's Afraid of Virginia uh, Wolf, was really like, who's afraid to live without illusion, you know? And so that's, I mean, I think that's really um, a, a valid thing to think about when you think about this play because they're, they're um, is it Martha and George are living their life as if they have a child and that's their big illusion that they, um, that they have this imaginary child and like it goes on until she takes it too far and he's like, look, like you can't, you got to cut it, can't do that, you know? Oh, see, that hits me right in the feels too. Because I'm currently going through uh, some Meisner training for acting, and that's one of the things that Meisner says is that to act is to live life truthfully under imaginary circumstances. So, so I really find that to be kind of an interesting concept there, and and I definitely think that also in and of itself plays into absurdism at the at the end of it that the writing style has a lot to do with that. Because that's the thing about absurdism. Mm -hmm. It is kind of a stripping away of things. It doesn't make sense, but at the same time, humans are perfectly illogical. We don't make sense. That's why the social sciences are so messy. And in a lot of ways, I see, even with my hatred for absurdism, because I really, really cannot express to you how much I dislike absurdist plays for the most part, I, I do appreciate the human element, even in the structure of absurdist place. Mm-hmm. I, I really do. And I'm glad that you were able to fill us in. Like, for myself, I wasn't really aware of what absurdism was. I mean, I had to kind of look it up and um, get the meaning out of it and just to see what it had to do with the play. But I'm glad that you were able to at least inform us um, a little bit about what it was. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that like a big part of absurdism is like um, bringing attention to like false content, you know? So like, right. that's a big thing that Virginia Woolf was about. It's was, a big way. Um, was just about like not like uncovering like things that were falsified, you know? Not just showing what people want you to see, but like what's actually going on, you know? Right, right. And that is really really true about absurdism and and maybe that in and of itself is part of the reason maybe maybe that's also why he chose absurdism as his as his writing style because even though it is nonsensical and in a lot of ways it really is the most true to human nature it really is artistic in nature and it's it's unique for this time period you know because absurdism actually is a pretty small window in American theater in in France which is the 60s and 70s so 20 max and then it was done and so much like human life it was pretty short-lived it wasn't like our realism and 
our romanticism that we see grace our stages for decades upon decades upon decades. All right. Well, I agree. Um, folks, we're going to take a little break. Hello, everybody. We're here back to see you again and to continue our podcast over Edward Albee and Who is Afraid of Virginia Woolf. In this section, we are going to try to see if we can come to a consensus about what Albee's decisions were and, and why he made this choice. In the end, in true interdisciplinary fashion, we may or may not come to one solid conclusion, but we feel it's worth at least trying to argue a point and see where we go. So I'm here again with my partners, Amanda. Hello. Maya. Hello. And I'm Audrey. So let's see where we're at. Okay, well, I'm going to talk about um, some of the characters in the play because they really um, are extremely important to uh, correlating this with for any of Virginia Woolf's works and... Um, and just uh, absurdism in general. Um, so the first person I'm going to talk about is George. George is Martha's husband. And he is basically, like, she sees him kind of as the help. That's kind of the way that she treats him. She refers to him um, as her houseboy, you know. So, like, it's kind of, it's it's really interesting to think about their relationship because it's, it goes back and forth. They're very catty, very snarky, very sarcastic with each other. And it's very interesting, but um, he's someone that um, he kind of does like, he's kind of her doormat, so to speak. She, um, Martha is not really pleased with the way that his career has kind of faded into the background and, um, he just, um, you can tell that he loves her and he's like the only person that can really kind of keep her from going bananas and going off the reins completely. He's kind of like right. her, um, like her foundation to keep her sane. Cause like, she's kind of a wild character. Martha would go crazy if, if people let her. So um, I think that's really important. Um, Martha is this very strong-willed, um, kind of out there. She's very, um, she likes things to go her way. And she, she's the, the daughter of the president of the college that her husband works for. And she lives like, she li lives a life that, um, well, she portrays herself to live a life that is more, I'd say, more, um, more out there than actual than it actually is. She right. portrays herself to be this person that is 
more vicarious, more just vivacious than she actually is. And, and she kind of lives in this world that's not real, you know, her, a life of illusion, I'd say. Um, but she, um, she's kind of the, the for the front runner of the entire play. She kind of holds the reins and kind of tries to control everything. And, she is the reason that the other the other um, two characters actually come to their house for drinks. And um, if you, if, I'm sorry, if you don't mind me asking, do you think that Martha, the way she treats George, do you think that has anything to do with his stance, like at the university? Do you think she probably expected more? Yeah, I think she's um, highly disappointed in like, like how everything has gone with him I think that she like I think one thing that attracts her to Nick um is that he is this like he's young and attractive but also he he has like drive to like what more he's kind of ambitious you know and yeah. I feel like right. George has kind kind of become more stagnant right and, right um like he he doesn't have the drive and the push and she kind of just runs over him mm-hmm. run up, runs over George and makes him do whatever she wants him to do you know and uh, Nick kind of just controls his wife like he shelters her and like tries to keep her treats her like a child you know um speaking of Nick anyway Nick is um a biologist and he he works in in the biology field at the college. And I think a big thing with that, like just showing the difference is that um, George works in history and like he talks about the past while science is more moving towards the future and going towards new things, always pushing towards finding out something new about the world. Right. About mm. um, And so I think that's a big thing that um, difference. And I, and I think that was a strategic choice um, with um with the playwright because um well and just to kind of throw back a little bit to some other things we've talked about in class there's also an interesting dichotomy going on here with the two wives we have like right now we're currently actually reading a handmaid's tale and mm-hmm. um, i know we hadn't planned to bring that in here but i can't help it it's just it's there <laughs> i gotta go um anyhow there's this dichotomy and this idea of there's the freedom to, and there's the freedom from. So mm-hmm. we have two wives, one who has freedom to, she does what she wants, when she wants, yeah. how she wants. Mm-hmm. And then we have this other wife, on the other hand, Honey, yeah. who has freedom from, she has freedom from responsibility. She has freedom from from having to take care of herself and be who she is. Exactly. Um, and I think that's another part of the script that gets really sticky and gets be, and this is why, because the logical portion of me who has studied theater and studied theater until I'm pretty sure that it just runs out my ear at this point. Like there's so much stuff crammed in there that, um, I know this is absurdism Mm -hmm. and, and that is what trips people up about this particular script is I know this is absurdism. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it has so many little nuggets yeah. for people to grab onto and start trying to pull that rope out of it. And then I think that's a big thing because it's like showing the many different layers of these people. Like, um, like they're living, living their lives kind of just, I think 
with at least with Martha and George, like they have this fear of like people actually seeing like what's going on. She has all the control yet she doesn't, you know? Right. And so I think that's really interesting just with that dynamic all in itself. Well, and it brings back into play the idea of not living truthfully, Mm -hmm. the falsification, the, the thing, it it really does play back into absurdism again there. And I Mm -hmm. think that's, I think that's a really fascinating concept. Yeah. Um, so back to the characters though, um, Nick's wife, Honey, she's actually seen kind of like um, as like uh, if we were to talk about a movie and uh, for an award, you'd call them the, um, what would you call it? Like a character that just assists. Uh, supporting Yes, actors. like a supporting actor. Mm-hmm. She, um, Nick treats her as if she's a child and he tries to shelter her from any of like the sexual innuendos that are spoken about throughout the the play or but um the alcohol yeah and and when like he nick is very much so like making the moves on martha but if george tries to say anything then it's like hey that's my wife dude you know and so i like i thought that was really interesting but she um she she is um she's afraid to have a child and I think that's really important I, I, um, because she is being treated as such that I think that it's um, it shows like why she would be afraid, you know, like, right. like you can't raise a child if you are a child, you know. No, absolutely. Well, and also to pull in a little bit more of the writings of Virginia Woolf, if we want to go back to a room of one's own, it also really brings into question are these women who they are because that's truly their nature are, or are they both equally products of their environment? Mm. Because Mm. in a room of one's own, she speaks about how women were just kind of throughout history forgotten. They were expected to take these roles and they didn't have another choice. Yeah. Or they had to have money. I mean, there, there had to be some kind of, wealth involved in order to for them to even be heard or seen or looked upon and as you were saying about honey um i find that kind of funny that she actually it was like the roles were switched when it was between martha and george you know martha was the one that had the money was um, inherited with from her father and then honey the same way has money and that was the reason why Nick really only got with her mm-hmm. was to, you know, help him get through college. And, you know, and it's almost like, now, what is she doing? Like, what is she going to do once he's done? Like, does she just live off him, depend off him? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, it, it really reminds me, you guys were talking about the roles of the women. It reminds me of the book, The Coquettes. You guys read that? I have not read but that. But it's basically um, about this woman who she has these suitors that are trying to go after her. And um, she, like, kind of decides she doesn't want either one of them until it's too late. And then she gets with a married man and she becomes pregnant. But it's about, like, how you have, like, the only choice she had was the choice of her husband. And then once she forfeited that by getting with a married man, like, her choice was no longer available to her. It was, like she was wasn't a woman anymore she was just an object 
that was expendable. Like that was, that was no longer supposed to be uh, like, just didn't have the right to be basically. And so I think that kind of, because these women, I was just thinking about the women their their roles are interesting. Um, Martha has power, but does she really have power? Like she controls what everyone thinks she controls, but she's really, uh, she has no control of herself, you know? Right. And so, um, but in a way, is that not the most truthful state of being that, that she's not in, that she's not in control of herself? Mm-hmm. And and I think that's, again, where we kind of circle back to absurdism. Mm-hmm. The thing about absurdism is, is it's really, as I said, this this plays a sticky wicket. It's really hard to really get in there and not want to superimpose ideas on it. Because we see these women and we see so many places where their lives could intersect with all this different literature that we've read. Mm -hmm. But then if we go back to the trueness of absurdism, absurdism tells us that characters in absurdism are not complete characters. They're not complete people. Yeah. But also at the same time, she's not a complete person. Yeah. She, she really isn't. Neither is honey. It's almost like they are two sides of a, of a split apple. One of them has everything seemingly, the other one has nothing seemingly, but in a way they both have their own problems going on to Mm -hmm. to contend with. I think it's also really interesting that like Martha's the strong one going for the other strong one, you know? Right. And that she thinks that's what she wants, except when she gets it, it's not what she wants you know and so uh, uh, the eternal problem of being a woman <laughs> <laughs> sorry guys but yeah true. but um I just think that like it's just it's just this reading this play I actually read it like twice um uh, it was just really interesting to me because you just see so many so many things and then you think about how this would how would be different in different time periods I really thought right. about that like what if this was set in like the 1800s or in like, or in, oh, absolutely. or in like 2018, you know, like how different, how, how would the dynamics differ then? And um, how would we look at it? Like, because different situations would make it different for each character. So absolutely. Well, it's probably time for us to start trying to come to a conclusion here. I think we have some really interesting concepts on the table we have this idea of the the very dichotomy of the characters. We have Mm -hmm. these ideas of absurdism. We have the ideas of Virginia Woolf, like Amanda has pulled in. And in a lot of ways, the very life of Virginia Woolf, that she lived this very almost absurdist life to some extent and definitely died what I feel is a truly like romantic absurdist death. If you can, if you can match romanticism and absurdism, those things really don't go together, <laughs> but I'm putting them together because I want them to go together. I'm going to, I'm going to do that one day. I'm going to write an absurdist romantic play. <laughs> it will be fabulous and so awful that everyone will have to see it. <laughs> but okay. Back on topic. Um, so in conclusion, is there really, do you think we can really come to a conclusion here? Can we really say without a doubt why the playwright chose this play on words? What do you think, Maya? I think, I think people could argue it either way, honestly. I think that there um, are some things that would, would make people go, hmm, 
is this why he did it? Maybe that's why. But I, I don't think that there are, is strictly a way to concretely just say that this is it, point blank, period, you know? Right. And, I mean, like you said, there's definitely character elements that can be seen that, mm-hmm. that could definitely draw some parallels through the writing of Virginia Woolf in this play. So, speaking of Virginia Woolf, what, what do you think, Amanda? Do you think there is any clear-cut, yes, this is the answer to this question? Actually, I kind of wanted to end with, like, a fun fact that I found out about Edward Albee. Um, he had, he actually got the title from uh, a bar. Um, actually, it was engraved in a bar of soap. And he sat on that for a little bit to wonder, like, should he use, actually, Virginia Woolf as um, the main character to put in his title? Like, he really, like let her unfold over all these years until he finally decided that, you know, Virginia Woolf was more uh, known as a writer that was famous for her stream of consciousness style. Like um, she, she wanted to live her life without any false illusions. Like, so all, if, that's what I was saying. Like, if you read any of her books, it's, it, you really, really have to like re re read it over and over again. Some of the words, they sort of don't make sense, but I mean, if you kind of like, look into it and you're oh okay now I get that now but I mean it's a really really difficult type of writing but that's what she wanted she wanted people to actually think you know um and not just glide through the book and I kind of think that you know we talked about Albie using her as like why what are we afraid of and we're saying that she's basically a free writer she's a free think free thinker um and it comes down to the question of the place title is who's afraid of facing reality. And my honest opinion is that we all are. I mean, we're all afraid, afraid of it. And then when you think back to the, the whole play, these two characters, Martha and George, that's all they do in this whole story is they're afra- afraid to face what they have, this marriage, this mm-hmm. broken marriage. They yeah. they don't love each other. They stay together. We don't know why they have an imaginary child. And it's, it's just all these things cracked in, to one little nutshell and then it's like you bring in this younger couple and they have time they have time to almost like if we're not happy together then let's leave you know let's separate you know if you're not if you don't love me and you don't want to have a family let's just leave so that's my concept you know as far as you know where I got Virginia Woolf um, involved in the title right and I mean there's also still this concept of of the writing cell itself but at the same time it's kind of like we've already said absurdism really does play into human nature because Mm -hmm. it is messy. It doesn't follow the well-made play structure that we came out of, you know, shortly before this period. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, I don't, unlike, I'm going to probably going to die for this, but I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree a little bit with Ionesco. I, I don't necessarily think that it's completely, completely pointless Mm -hmm. and I think he straddles the line of realism enough that I think there are some very valid points here Mm -hmm. as far as with Virginia Woolf with characterization Mm -hmm. and there also are some some really interesting points that we've been able to make about absurdism right um but in true interdisciplinary style because that's what we do here at USAO as wonderful drivers (laughs) um I don't think there is one right answer I think there is a little bit of all three of us in this play. I think this is a play and a concept that we could probably spend days and weeks 
speaking about and we probably wouldn't run out of things to say. Yeah. However, I'm going to say that the fact that he found it on a bar of soap, that makes me a little happy. And <laughs> like, I really do want to just think that like he was taking a bath one day and he just picks up this bar of soap and is like, hmm, that's <laughs> yeah. a wonderful name for a play. And, yeah. and that's how he got Virginia Woolf. But I think we all know it's a little deeper than that. Yeah. yeah. So to wrap us up and in conclusion, um, I don't know that we do have an answer. I, I think that's part of the fun. And of I don't think absurdism. there has to be an answer. I think that that's one thing that's really cool about this type of writing is that there there, there doesn't have to be an answer because people are going to come with different backgrounds and different mindsets. And I think that's really cool. So I say we leave women absurdist style and that is we leave them with no answer. <laughs> well, guys, hate to do this to you, but the play's absurdist. So go find yourself a copy of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Read a few Virginia Woolf writings, preferably A Room of His Own and... Miss Dalloway. Miss Dalloway. And decide for yourself. So I hope you guys all have a wonderful Thanksgiving break. And we are out. Good night. Good night. Good night.